You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is 7am on the 22nd of February 2022. Hi everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. I've got Fung and Carnegie with me in the studio. I'm Evie. Um, it's been a while since I've panelled, so I'm just getting back on the training wheels. <laughs> How's everyone's week been? <laughs> I'm trying to recall my week and I actually cannot. So I think that says a lot. Is it like just getting back into the groove of things at work? and? Um... Yeah, all of, all of the above. Um, but I think... I, I don't know. I think the weather is starting to change a little bit, um, and I have forgotten what that's like. <laughs> I, I noticed when I was coming in this morning that it's already started getting dark again, and like I, I was like used to like like one month of it being like really bright at like you know yes. six a.m. Mm. and now it's already gone again, which is sad. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I do miss the. Yeah, early sunrises and late sunsets, but I do also love autumn, so I really don't mind at all that we're heading into autumn. Yeah, Melbourne autumn is really beautiful as well, and um, it looks like there's a lot of things happening in the city um, coming up just to like get people back out on the street and doing fun stuff again too. Um, so yeah, we've got a really jam-packed show for you today. Um uh, uh, Fung, do you want to uh, get started and tell us all about what you're going to be doing today? Sure. So um, first I'll be speaking with Lucia from Fight Together for Justice. We had Jess from the organisation not that long ago. Lucia is going to join us today to speak to us about the Migration Act, Migration Amendment, Strengthening the Character um, Test Bill, which the Morrison government has tried to pass or get in now several times. So we'll be speaking about that, um, what it is, the history of the bill, and uh, how it will affect refugees and people seeking asylum in this country. Afterwards, I'll be speaking with Sarah from the Queer Solidarity Film Festival. Uh, Sarah is a queer Syrian filmmaker and programmer for the festival, and uh, she'll be on the show to talk about their event that's happening on Saturday and talking a bit about some of the films that will be played at the event, which is super exciting. Um, and then after that, I will be speaking with artist Katie Svetkidis and Joe Porter, who is the CEO of Queen Victoria Women's Centre, about the current exhibition happening there called Present Memory. And that will be followed by my conversation with senior solicitor 
Alison Ryan from RACS, um, and we will be talking about the short film uh, documentary competition that the Australian government is funding in Sri Lanka at the moment. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing about that because it's, yeah, it just sounds preposterous, but um, we'll leave that discussion for a bit later. Um, I'll also have a short clip um, of Carly of Climate Action Collective interviewing Emma Bacon of Swadling Cities, um, which is a project designed to understand how um, the suburbs and cities deal with heat stress. So, yeah, as I said, we've got some really fantastic stuff coming up. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned to that. We're just going to play a quick PSA uh, and we'll be right back. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, just some news headlines for you this morning. Yeah, so later, as I said earlier, later today we'll be speaking with um, senior solicitor Alison Ryan about a documentary film competition that the Australian government is actually funding in Sri Lanka. Um, so just a bit of context around that is that um, it's part of an Australian government-funded campaign called Zero Chance, and it is a call-out for filmmakers in Sri Lanka to... Um, creatively express illegal migration to Australia, showcasing that there is zero chance of successfully getting here by boat. Um, I actually stumbled across this because someone I know was recently visiting their family in Sri Lanka and put uh, a screenshot, or sorry, took a photo of an ad in the actual newspaper there and put it on their Instagram story, and I did like several double oh takes. Because I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And then it took weeks for anyone here to report on it. So I'm glad that um, it has been reported on now. And I'm keen to hear from um, a lawyer who works with refugees and asylum seekers about what this means. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to speak about an article that's just come out in today's uh, age. And just a warning that this story um, talks about family violence and violence against women. Um, so it's been reported that a third of men in this country who kill their women partners have not been previously um, or have not previously come to police attention. Um, their partners were middle class employed and may not have recognised themselves as victims. There's a quote here from the um, Australian Institute of Criminology. Um, it says that in some cases, uh, killers are, and I quote, typically middle class men who were well respected in their communities and had low levels of contact with the criminal justice system. Um, and the report, which is to be released by um, A&R OWS National Research Conference on Violence Against Women 
uh, today challenges those common stereotypes that the overwhelming majority of family violence perpetrators and victims are from seriously disadvantaged backgrounds and have regular contact with police. Um, And it also sheds light on non-physical forms of family violence and how this may actually have fatal effects. So, um, yeah, that keep your eyes open for for that report today. I'm really glad that this is being reported um, because I find that that is the one super common misconception about family violence, of which there are many, but the class-based one is a Mm. big one. You know, it's often said that it's the lower classes, people who are quote-unquote uneducated, and I just know that to be so far from the truth. So, yeah, this is is really good. Mm. There's also um, some news reports um, in the last day or so about... um, you know, a, a, a very observable instance of women um, being compelled or, um, you know, forced to withdraw their super. Um, in Australia, um, in 2020, we were allowed to withdraw super without any penalty um, during the coronavirus um, pandemic, during our lockdown. Um, for anyone who was, like, not receiving wages or uh, missed out on hours of work, you were allowed to withdraw up to $10,000 um, of your super and it turns out that quite a significant number of women are now have sus- suspected to have um, been sort of uh, withdrawing that under com- being compelled by their partners to do so. Um, we'll have a little conversation about that um, in the future on Tuesday Breakfast. Um, some other news as well, just some really sad news um, that has come out um, from Sydney. An Indigenous teenager has died after his bike uh, quote-unquote collided with an unmarked police car in Sydney. I want to really emphasise the passive voice that has been used in a lot of the headlines um, regarding this incident. Um, as you can imagine, there's a lot of controversy as to how this incident took place. Um, Jai Wright was only 16 years old and he died on Sunday from head injuries after his bike collided with an unmarked police car on Saturday morning. Uh, he just finished year 10 and had started an apprenticeship to become an electrician. He was described by his father as bright, eager and hardworking. Uh, He got the job on Thursday and started on Monday. Uh, He could have had time off, but he was really excited, his dad said. Um, The circumstances of that crash, of course, are still being investigated. Uh, However, Wright said he was told two different versions of the events by New South Wales Police. Uh, Of course, we'll be following that quite closely on 3CR. Um, So stay tuned for more news about that. And finally, um, there are some isolation rule changes in sight for households um, and these are being considered by the country's chief chief health officers and state officials. Um, They're proposing that household contacts of COVID-positive people will not be required to isolate. Um, Health officials in both Victoria and New South Wales are separately working on a plan that would allow asymptomatic household contacts who have had three doses of the vaccine to leave isolation and attend work. There is still, you know, quite a bit of debate around this issue. Um, For example, Professor Baxter from the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health um, has told the age uh, that... Um, or has cautioned against the loosening of isolation rules, given that both states are also pairing back mask and density rules. So watch this space for any um, possible changes to those isolation rules. 
Yeah, there's, I think there's going to be some interesting developments now as this current peak subsides, so stay tuned. Um, we'll be right back after these messages. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Hello, 3CR listeners. I'm Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women and Asia Pacific Currents, and I'm appealing to you to subscribe to 3CR to keep radical voices on air. I've been a volunteer and broadcaster at 3CR for over 20 years, and I can say categorically that radical voices like ours that bring you stories of extraordinary, incredible women from across the world leading grassroots struggles, well, those voices just aren't welcome in the mainstream media. You won't hear about the struggle against Samsung's human rights abuses against its workers in South Korea. You won't hear about the plight of the Myanmar resistance against the coup on any other station, at least not the way we tell it here at 3CR. So be a comrade and go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Coming up for you now, we have a clip that Carly of the Climate Action Collective did with Emma Bacon, the Executive Director of Sweltering Cities, on the Climate Action Show. Emma Bacon is an activist and campaigner passionate about sustainable and joyous cities for a world changed by a heating climate. She spoke to Carly about the project's vision for cooler, more equitable and sustainable cities with planning and policy that puts people at the centre. Here's Emma now leading with telling us what the Sweltering Cities project is all about. So Sweltering Cities is a small NGO that works directly with communities who are living in the hottest suburbs across Australia to campaign and organise and advocate for more livable, equitable and sustainable cities. And that includes, you know, as we say, turning down the oven, which means climate action um, that is going to actually stop our cities becoming really, really baking hot uh, for lots more of the year. And so Sweltering Cities is was started um, at the beginning of 2020, which is a great time to start a new organisation that's based in, <laughs> you know, community-focused outreach. Um, but what we've found over the last couple of years, you know, existing at the same time as we've had this global pandemic is that there's a huge demand from people to be talking about these issues, who want to share their stories about what extreme heat is doing to them, how it's affecting how they live, how they work, how they take care of their family or the kids or older people and that people are really interested in becoming part of a campaign or part of a movement to do something about that and to make sure that the communities they live in are livable, sustainable, equitable, 
um, into the future. So even though it's been a tough couple of years, I think that, you know, these issues are more important than ever and a lot of people are really keen to be involved, which is great. It's amazing work starting um, a community organisation through a pandemic, but I imagine, you know, I'm hoping that a lot of people are at home and really just ready to get their hands into something tangible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> so what are some of the work and the campaigns that you've been doing? So there's really three big pillars of what Sweltering Cities does. So the first is community organising that's working directly with communities in the hottest suburbs. Across Australia, we know that areas like Western Sydney and Southwest Sydney are really powerfully affected. Uh, in Penrith, in Western Sydney, it was 48.9 degrees a couple of summers ago. And if you think about what that would even feel like to be on the pavement, to try and work in that sort of temperatures, to be walking home from school or work in that sort of extreme baking heat, um, we know that that part of the part of Australia is really powerfully affected. But There's also other parts like Western Melbourne, especially in those large urban heat island areas uh, where there's not enough trees, there's a lot of concrete, um, places like Sunshine where, you know, there's really uh, lots of concrete, dark surfaces, not enough trees, and it's much warmer than other parts of the city, and also the Dandenong region in Melbourne. And we work with communities in also southeast Queensland. People think Queensland's already hot, but you know, as the temperatures rise due to climate change, it's going to be even hotter overnight and people aren't going to get that relief their bodies need in order to be um, in order to be healthy through the heat. So we're doing that close work with communities. We're also running strategic campaigns. So it's saying what are real tangible things that will support communities to adapt to climate change, to build a more livable, sustainable community. Identifying things like, you know, Lots of the hottest suburbs in Sydney don't have bus shelters at the bus stops. I really enjoyed looking at the Sweltering Cities website and seeing in the resources section, um, you know, the blog post, heat waves on a day at the beach, heat-related illnesses and resources. And I, f- I really like that because a lot of the time the media position is, you know, climate change is coming, more hot days and evenings, and there's these beautiful pictures of people at the beach relaxing, having fun. And I'm still not sure that enough work is being done to have people draw the link between illness and extreme heat. You're 100% right. Heat waves are Australia's most deadly environmental disaster. Since we've started recording statistics on you know, people who die during environmental disasters in Australia, heat waves have killed more than all the other disasters combined. But when we think about those hot heat wave days and on the front page of the newspaper you've got people at the beach that's not telling the full story about how people are being impacted it's not telling you that you know there's parts of sydney where three times as many people are turning up to hospital than in the cooler suburbs because their suburbs are much hotter we need to actually reflect the fact that it is environmental disaster in media coverage but more importantly we need to put people who've got the direct lived experience of those heat waves and of living those urban heat islands into the news as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, have you connected with much of the community in those really hot suburbs of New South Wales? How is that going? What are, what are some oh, of yeah. the conversations that you're having? Oh, we're working directly with lots of people across the city. We've had community meetings in Penrith, Blacktown, Campbelltown, and lots more, lots of individual meetings with people across the city. Uh, Last year, we did a community survey with over 700 people um, all over Sydney, over 170 postcodes who told us about what it feels like uh, to live through the heat. 
and how it's affecting them. Things like 87% of people who did the survey saying that they've got trouble sleeping. And the next day they feel, you know, dizzy, unwell, grumpy, they can't concentrate. There's a huge number of people who are affected. The stories we're hearing are, you know, often really, really hard to listen to. You will be shocked by how many people tell me that they're dreading the summer. I've spoken to people who are worried about their families who, you know, are really anxious that they're not going to be able to pay for air conditioning or that their homes aren't set up to be safe over the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, when you've got some people across the cities who are dreading summer and other people who are excited about, you know, all the time they're going to get spent at the beach, you're saying there's huge inequality. And it's actually inequality that's driving so many of these problems. Um, Sweltering Cities works at the intersection of health, inequality and climate change. Because, you know, even if we all have electric, well, sorry, even if some people have electric cars, even if there's lots of, you know, solar panels for air conditioning, you know, in wealthier parts of the city, that's actually not going to address, you know, adapting to climate change for the people who really need it. And those are the people living in our hottest suburbs. So, yeah, we have been meeting with people across the city in Penrith, in Blacktown and Campbelltown and having meetings where people are welcoming us into their homes and their communities across the city. And it's those conversations that are really driving the strategy and the direction of Sweltering Cities. Last summer, we did a huge community survey with 700 people across 170 postcodes in Sydney, uh, mostly in the highly affected areas of Western Northwest Sydney. And people are telling us, you know, things like 87% of them felt like they couldn't sleep on hot nights or during heat waves. They were feeling, you know, unwell. They couldn't concentrate. They're feeling dizzy um, the next day. And, you know, we're seeing just the huge impact it's having on people's lives. You will be shocked by how many people tell me that they are dreading summer. You know, sweltering cities mm. works at the intersection of climate change, inequality and health. And it's inequality that's driving these really dire impacts for so many people across our cities. It's really incredible and I think that's a fantastic community-led way to do it. That's great. Are you noticing any um, health impacts aside from the increasing hospital presentations? Well, you know, unfortunately we don't have enough of the statistics for how heat is impacting Australians' health because when people turn up to the hospital, they go to the doctors or, you know, unfortunately if they die, during heat waves, then often their illnesses or their deaths are recorded as respiratory or mm. cardiovascular disease. So it's work being done afterwards by epidemiologists to say, well, there was this increase in deaths or disease during that time. We're not getting an up-to-date um, record of what's happening. And that's one of the reasons why people don't see heat waves as an emergency, because we're not measuring the health impacts in real time. But heat-related illnesses are everything from dehydration, heat stress, sorry, heat stroke, heat stress, um, heat exhaustion, and that can really, uh, you know, it can sneak up on you. It can be mm. a few, you know, a half an hour walk in the sun with not enough water for the right person can actually give them um, some really dramatic health impacts when it's 40, 45 degrees out there. People need to be really careful. Um, but we're not doing enough to support the most vulnerable people. Mm. And I guess in the time that you've been with the group, what is the response from um, developers and um, politicians like? You know, I think that there are 
lots of people who are trying their best to do their version of sustainable development. Mm. But until we raise standards, until we raise minimum standards, we are not going to be creating the sustainable communities that we need to address climate change. There are huge numbers of emissions that come through the lack of energy efficiency, lack of renewable energy supplied to the housing sector, um, the driving emissions. And as we see temperatures increase, people are going to turn on the aircon and that's just going to increase. I would say that everything that people think they're doing at the moment from tree planting strategies onwards, uh, mm. we just need to do more of, and it needs to be more heavily targeted towards hot areas where the most vulnerable people live or the most marginalized people live. And it, we need to say, you know, public, th- like public transport is an example. Public transport is climate change adaptation and mitigation. Mm. You know? I think that we need to make public transport accessible, sustainable, the solution to climate change is not just giving everyone a Tesla. It's saying people can get on a locally, like a, a bus outside their house that's going to help take them around their day. Mm. You know, the cities of the future, we need to think of as really interconnected, really um, green and really accessible for people. And I would say that governments, developers are not doing enough at the moment for those people who are the most marginalised and we need to raise standards across the board. Mm. And logical kind of public transport systems, hey, and routes, not ones that, you know, take you two or three hours to get to, you know, A to B because you need to go through J, like J, Z, M first. Yeah. And this is a huge issue in Melbourne. Like I used to live Mm. in uh, Footscray in Melbourne and this was 10 years ago, but, you know, it felt like a long way from the leafy tram routes of the inner north, you know, mm. and that was um, nothing compared to like if you go to somewhere like Broadmeadows, if you go to other parts of the western suburbs, and they're really underserved when it comes to public transport. Mm. And, you know, it's having sensible public transport systems that are electrified, that meet community need. And it's saying the new suburbs we are planning, you know, there should be rail links put in as we're building new suburbs. Um, and other public transport links. So we aren't creating more car-dependent communities because that just means bigger roads, more urban heat islands and more pollution. So that was Carly from the Climate Action Collective interviewing Emma Bacon of Sweltering Cities on the Climate Action Show. We're now going to head to a track. This song is called Let Me Grow My Wings by uh, South Sudanese artist Ajak Kwai, who actually now resides and works in Nam. Um, if you're a fan of Ajak Kwai, you'll be happy to know that uh, she'll be at the 3CR International Women's Day um, event that's happening just outside the studios in a couple of weeks time Um, but we'll give you more details on that event um, next week Uh, but in the meantime this is her song let me grow my wings
track let me grow my wings we are now joined by lucia from fight together for justice who is speaking to us about the um, reintroduced migration act migration amendment strengthening the character bill 
um, which aims to create a new character of designated offences, where if a person is convicted of one of these offences, they are automatically deemed to fail the existing character test and their visa can be considered for cancellation. Um, So Lucia is joining us this morning to speak to us about the bill and its impact on refugees and people seeking asylum in this country. Welcome to 3CR, Lucia. Hi, Sam. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for um, getting up early and joining us this morning. Um, Could you please start by telling us where you're joining us from? Yeah, I'm joining from Darug Country, which is also known as Western City. So Fight Together for Justice are a NAM-based group, um, and I help them remotely. And thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much for that introduction. So um, I did just give a little bit of information about this bill in the introduction, but could you tell us more about what this strengthening the character test amendment is all about? Yeah. So this particular amendment addresses Section 501 in the Migration Act, which relates to character requirements for the refusal or cancellation of a visa. And the premise of this strengthening the character test bill is to um, outline a series of designated offences that an individual can be charged for and automatically declined a visa on. So it's more of a hardline approach uh, to what the immigration minister already has in terms of godlike powers. Yeah, and and as I was saying before, this isn't the first time that we've heard of this bill. Um, in fact, it's been um, introduced and reintroduced uh, a few times already. Could you tell us um, a bit about the history of this bill and its amendments? Yeah, sure. So this amendment came up actually in response to a 2017 report by the Joint Committee on Migration, um, which was largely in response to the APEX gang crime yeah. in Melbourne. And so um, already it came from a largely racialized standpoint. And so in 2018, this bill was suggested to Parliament and it was suggested again in 2019 and was debated and failed. And so it's returned now in 2022 um, with only a slight alteration to its wording, um, mainly in the sense of what a designated offence is, which is outlined as things like violence or threat of violence, um, also any non-consensual sexual conduct and um, something like using or possessing a weapon. So uh, the wording around what an offence is and what an individual can be automatically denied a visa on has changed slightly, but other than that, it's, the bill has largely remained intact. Mm. And, and so what will this mean for refugees and people seeking asylum in, a, in so-called Australia? Um, I mean, it's not, it's not just going to affect um, those who's, uh, I guess, um, who are still waiting to have their visas processed, but it, could it also affect people who, have, who are already living in this country? Yeah, definitely. So one of the criticisms of the bill is that it works on a retrospective um, angle. So that means that anyone who's been previously convicted of a designated offence, either in Australia or in another country, can have their um, visa automatically revoked because they have failed the character test. So um, many of the people who've lived in Australia for decades with no recent criminal history could also have their visa revoked. And one of the other criticisms of the bill is that it places a really facing um, approach on family violence. Um, one of the 
defenses of the bill is that it protects uh, family rights as well as the rights of the child. But one of the issues with this bill is that it um, fails to consider the complexities Mm -hmm. of family violence and how victim survivors may also be hesitant to come forward because their visa might be revoked if they happen to detail accounts of self-defense, trauma responses, so it's quite complex. For sure. Um, I think, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It doesn't seem to take into consideration any of the nuances of these complex issues and um, more. Uh, what's more terrifying is how much power the minister now has. I mean, you were saying before, they already have godlike powers. It, it seems like it can't get any more... Um, yeah, he can't be any more powerful. But um, yeah, I, I think I, I did see um, a comment about, you know, if the minister can revoke um, uh, a tennis player's visa, um, surely they don't really need this bill because they can already just revoke anyone's visa. Um, but yeah, does this, uh, how how does this increase the, the minister's powers even more? Or, or what are your reflections on this? Yeah, so um, personally, I think the bill is largely symbolic. Mm. It doesn't serve any pragmatic value, um, but it's largely symbolic of the Liberal Party's stance on national security. And so this is also part of what's come up in regards to labour folding on the bill when they've historically opposed it. Um, It's been uh, suggested that it's a test of their commitment to national security. And in uh, um, the Immigration Minister's framing of this bill, He's also spoken about how um, this is a bill to protect victims of any assaults that are committed by non-Australians. And so there's already this binary that's Mm. um, projected onto an us-or-them narrative of how immigration in this country works. And also when this bill came up initially in 2017, it was largely framed through punitive wording. Mm. um, And it was... Uh, suggested as this mechanism that would compel new arrivals uh, to think twice about how they would behave, um, lest they risk incarceration, um, more heavier policing. So this idea as well of the pre-arrival trauma that people suffer from, um, there's no sense of rehabilitation for them, which um, would, I think, solve a lot of issues um, Mm. at the root rather than more heavier policing and um, threat of detention. So uh, I think to answer your question, the godlike powers of the minister are more likely just enshrined in this bill and held up as a symbolic um, component of his role. But besides that, um, he already has discretionary power to revoke a visa. Yeah, there are so many things that you said in that that um, really make me think um, a lot about the conversation, especially now pre-election, um, that uh, impulse to bring into, you know, the conversation nas- national security being tough on crime. I think people uh, are used to these conversations coming up during an election um, year or right before an election is called. Um, and it it's really quite disturbing that you know, the government is saying, oh, we're doing this to protect people from 
violence or, or, you know, protect victims of family violence, but we know that they don't do anything um, uh, elsewhere to protect to protect people. Um, so it's it does seem to be like a pick and choose um, sort of um, situation here, and and really, like you said, um, invoking you know or using quite xenophobic language. Um, and just quickly, uh, just Labor's position. You said that historically they've opposed the bill, but now um, I think uh, recently um, they've said that they will not oppose the bill but will um, want uh, amendments to be made. Can you tell us more about Labor's current position? Yeah, so this was communicated largely through Christina Keneally and I think her response as well is reflective of the um, really harsh imperatives that are put on this bill and the more hardline lens of convicting explicitly, uh, to quote her words, like um, rapists, or more serious offenders, um, that the bill is also at risk of endangering people who are convicted of uh, minor offences. And so currently Labor has folded on the bill and they've voted um, as, a, as a means of protecting their own reputation uh, for respecting national security. They've um, supported the bill and it'll now get voted on in, um, in Senate. Mm. Yeah, well, it's interesting to note. Um, well, I think it's it's really interesting for people to keep tabs on 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 what's what people, what politicians say, um, and and how they support you know um, the health and well being of refugees and people seeking asylum in some instances, and then voting or letting through bills um, that actually do quite the opposite. So. Um, yeah, good to keep tabs on that. Um, well, we're running out of time now, uh, Lucia, but um, thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to um, know more about um, Fight Together for Justice, um, whether they're in NAM or, or elsewhere, um, what would you recommend? Yeah, so we have an Instagram as well as a Twitter and a Facebook, so um, feel free to check us out on there. Um, and we support a lot of other not-for-profits and community organisations as well. So um, try to keep a network of support. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so that was Lucia from Fight Together for Justice, um, which is a NAM-based organisation. Um, and Lucia was just on the show speaking to us about the um, character, or uh, strengthening the character test bill Um uh, which was reintroduced by the Morrison government um, in November 2021. Um, we'll be back right after this very quick break. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Thanks for joining us again on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to go to another track now. This is by London-based artist Hope Tuller and it's their song, All My Girls Like to Fight. Deep at night. Ah. 
So uh, that was the song um, All My Girls Like to Fight by Hope Tuller. Uh, we are now going to go with uh, go into an interview with Sarah, who is a queer Syrian filmmaker and one of the programmers for the Queer Solidarity Film Festival. Um, and she'll be speaking with us today about uh, the Queer um, Solidarity Film Festival event, Intergenerational Transmissions, which is happening um, this Saturday. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Sarah. Hi, Sarah, are you there? Yes. Oh, hi. Yes, yes, I can. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, Thank you for having me. Would you mind just telling us briefly about the origins of the Queer Solidarity Film Festival? Yeah, for sure. Um, So... Back in November, we contacted MQFF, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, to say no to pinkwashing of Israeli apartheid, so by adopting a cultural boycott um, in line with BDS, so boycott, divest and sanction policies. And um, initially, you know, we thought we were going somewhere. We set up a few meetings and had, you know, great open lines of communication. But unfortunately, at the end, MQFF chose to maintain their complicity in apartheid over, you know, accountability to our communities. 
So they screened films and documentaries of, you know, notorious pinkwashers. And for those listening who don't know what pinkwashing is, it's when a government exploits LGBTQIA rights to seem like a progressive state, but also in a concealing occupation and apartheid, oppressing Palestinians, especially queer Palestinians. So we wanted to do something about it. So we actually put out a call to communities involved with the Melbourne Queer Film Festival to stand in solidarity with us and boycott. We had three board members resign and many, many filmmakers and volunteers and audience members pull out and speakers as well. So essentially like 10 short films and one feature film actually pulled out their work and uh, we wanted to have them screen elsewhere. So put together, you know, Queer Solidarity Film Festival and I guess the main difference from any other festival is that it's community-run grassroots, it's not really structured like a festival with competitions and stages and, you know, industry standard. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like a counter place to, you know, those really heavily colonised and institutionalised festivals in um, so-called Australia. So, yeah, that's how it came about. For sure. And and that's definitely something that I've noticed as well, um, is that it's it's really, really is rooted in solidarity and justice for um, First Nations people here in, in so-called yeah. Australia, but also um, any Indigenous people um, or any people experiencing oppression elsewhere as well, for example, Palestine. So um, there's an event happening this Saturday. It's called QSFF2, Intergenerational Transmissions. Um, it's an online event taking place on the weekend. What can people expect from this event? Yeah, so um, we had an event previously in December where we sold out and we screened a lot of the shorts that had pulled out. We wanted to kind of do something similar but make it a lot more accessible. And I guess, like, I hope a lot of us are actually being aware that, you know, the toll that COVID is continuing to take on on many communities. So we wanted to make it as accessible as possible by making it online. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll be having a discussion between different generations of artists and filmmakers talking about queerness and intersectionality on screen and uh, festivals and community-run events in NAM. And it's going to be facilitated by Mohib, who's one of our presenters, um, and with two filmmakers from one of the shorts that we're screening, Lesbian Postmortem, so Aaron Dati and Brianna, as well as a few more artists and writers kind of involved in like the same space, uh, which will actually reveal a bit more closer to the date. So yeah, that's kind of uh, what people can expect on Saturday. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, are there any films in particular that you're looking forward to, to showing um, people? Um... I can't. I can't really like pinpoint one, but I, I like you know as like programmer, I to watch them all um, over and over again. I really loved them, but I loved watching the documentary Purr. Mm. Um, it was really vibrant and just open and very memorable. Um, but you know all of the shorts and the features are just like really of an incredible standard. And I wish we could really show the whole world how much talent and effort has been put into these films. So all of them are really worth checking out. Amazing. Um, And I understand that you've also got a short film playing on Saturday. Um, Tell us more about this. Yeah, um, so uh, I'm at I'm at Swinburne currently, and um, last year we worked with 16mm film, um, so I just wanted to tell a story, and I, I told Latansuna, uh, which means don't forget us in Arabic, so it's an Arabic short film, and we made it for an assignment, and it follows uh, Noor, played my, my good friend Mark, who's from Syria, um, as I am, so who arrives, you know, an Australian shore and seeks refuge here, and kind of it's a, it's a short commentary on 
on, on what people think kind of migration and assimilation in Australia is like and, and actually talks about the realities, whether that's, you know, on mental health, physical mm-hmm. health, being detained. Um, it kind of feels like a like a community project in a way because, you know, what Mark discusses are actual, like, real words of refugees and people with lived experiences. Um, so, yeah, I'm very proud to have it screen uh, with QSFF, um, it's been kind of circulating a few festivals, which has been just a, such a such a huge privilege for me and my my team. Um, but yeah, it will be part of the lineup on Saturday amongst some amazing short films. So I'm looking forward to that one. That sounds awesome. I think it's so important to to tell these stories, but like you said, tell it from the people who have actually experienced it, um, yeah. rather than have it made by people in communities who have no lived experience or, or don't actually understand the, the nuances and complexities of, of what it's like. So, um, yeah, that's, and awesome. that's I guess that's a, like a theme amongst a lot of the films that we're screening and as well as um, like the people behind QSFF, we've all experienced uh, like we, we understand what we're, what we're standing for and, and what the fight is about and um, that makes it such a kind of safe place to be involved in for sure awesome um well if any of our listeners would like to um to buy tickets to the event or even just know more about the queer solidarity film festival um where can they go um i think the best way is probably just to find us on instagram so it's at solidarity film festival so at Solidarity Film Festival, yep. And we have all of the links and the information there. Um, and also, like, tickets are $10, but um, we don't want anyone to not be able to come if they're fa- facing financial hardships. So there's um, free tickets as well. Um, and just, like, send us a message if you're interested in getting to know or what we're about or just, like, helping out if you have any ideas. Our lines are always open. Um but yeah, I'm, re- I'm really looking forward to it. It sounds like it's going to be such an incredible um, community event um, yep. and, you know, born out of protest but has become something really quite powerful and, and beautiful for the community. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm personally looking forward forward to the event this Saturday. Um, but thank you so much, Sarah, for, for coming on the show and speaking to us about QSFF and the upcoming event, Intergenerational Transmissions. No worries. Thank you so much for having me and I look forward to to seeing you there. Great. Thank you. Um, So that was Sarah, who is a queer Syrian filmmaker and programmer for um, the Queer Solidarity Film Festival. Um, If you'd like to know more about the event um, or would like to check out their Instagram, we will pop the link in our show notes later this morning. Uh, We'll be back with some more great interviews after this. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram.
Live at the Bowl is on now. The open-air series returns from January to April with an exhilarating program of live performance. See some of the best homegrown and international acts on the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl stage. Share a picnic on the hill, take in a symphony at sunset, or dance the night away to your favourite musicians. Explore the full program at artscentermelbourne.com.au. 3CR supporter. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accented women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Welcome back to 3CR Community Radio. Next up, we will be speaking to artist uh, Katie Svetkidis. Katie is a NAM-based multidisciplinary artist with work spanning across visual art and live performances. Her practice unpacks ideas around intersectional feminism and the role play in women play in public life. We will also be joined by Joe Porter, who is the CEO of Queen Victoria Women's Centre, where Katie has been working on her project, Present Memory, as QVWC's feminist emissary. Welcome to the show, Katie and Joe. Hello. Hi, how are you so both? Much. Yeah, good. Great. Um, so you've both been working on Present Memory for 18 months now, is that right? Yeah, even longer actually. Yeah, it's been it's been a journey. Uh what has both your experiences been like creating this project about women experiencing the pandemic essentially as women experiencing the pandemic? Let's start with you, Joe. I have um been obviously the CEO of the Queen Victoria Women's Centre, which is a sort of a partly a container for other organisations and partly an outreach organisation that welcomes people to uh, spaces to create social capital and explore ideas and have meetings and all those sorts of things. So in the most simple terms, my experience has been um, one of a sort of a silence as the, as the building um, closed down. But simultaneously, this incredible... Uh, project that uh, Katie will tell you about in a second and also uh, supporting individual uh, makers who uh, supply our shop and being able to provide them with a little bit of financial and moral support by making sure their products are out there in the world while we're all closed off or we have been closed off at home. Uh, Handing over to you, Katie. Yeah, well, I guess, like, I feel like the project kind of has, like, its own COVID journey alongside, like, everyone experiencing, I guess, like, the ups and downs of the pandemic. So, like, that has been sort of really interesting, I guess. You know, it's, like, taken... It's sort of been reformed and reimagined, like, many times. And, um, you know, but I think for me, like, the one thing about the the project that, that you know, I, I think is still really pertinent is, like, along the way it's sort of 
you know, I was able to have sort of multiple conversations with women across Victoria about their experiences of the pandemic and it, I guess, allowed um, them to reflect on what was happening in real time, but also, I guess, allowed, like, me to reflect on my own experience and, I guess, like, similarities and differences that, of the experiences that everybody was having. Yeah, I mean, we spoke about this uh on air last year in August when I think you were just a few months into the project um, and looking back now has it turned out the way you expected or has it just taken a completely different form? Um, I mean I think yeah it's definitely changed I'm it's sort of I guess I feel like some things kind of just grew out of conversations so you know I had always imagined that we would make an archive and I was, was sort of describing it as like a time capsule and now uh, we actually have made like a physical uh, time capsule that was um, co-designed with um, Ian Brace Girdle and it's this, you know, large steel COVID ball with um, its own little like knitted sort of blanket. It was actually knitted by Joe, And um, I think like, yeah, I always like, I think the thing like, you know, I'm constantly rereading the transcripts and the interviews and like, Every time I read them, I, like, get something new out of them. And I think that there's something about, like, the sort of shifting relationship that we're all having to, like, what has been, like, the last two years as well. Yeah, I think the last time we spoke, you did say that um, it has been a little bit... There's cathartic elements to sharing the COVID experience in a way with lots of other women. Yeah, and that everybody's experiences are so... um, Diverse is not quite the right word, but, like, so complex, right? Like, everybody, um, I think, like, even within each interview or each um, experience, you know, it sort of captures, like, the good and the bad of, of that period and, you know, and that people's lives are, like, really complex. They're not just one thing. They're, like, you know, they might be artists, but they're also, like, homeschooling their children, but they're also maybe, like, you know, trying to relate to family and to state. Like, they're sort of, like, you know each person's story is actually like encapsulates like multiple different issues at once. Yeah. Um, so present memory is currently on at QVWC and will culminate in a time capsule burial on the 13th of March. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about this? Yeah. So as I said, uh, just describing, so we've built this time capsule, which is this like big round steel COVID ball. And uh, inside the time capsule is... Um, a book that has, you know, excerpts from testimony from all the um, people, all the women that I interviewed, people and non-binary people too, and a new series of artworks that are like a, like political banners that are inspired by all the um, people that I spoke to during the project. And it also has like other, I guess, like pandemic-related items inside the capsule. So there's like a roll of toilet paper, bottle hand sanitizer, um, we managed to get our hands on a rat test and um, some masks that were custom made by uh, artists uh, Phoebe, Parisia and Becca Hanna, it's like especially for the project. So everyone that participated in the project is also given one of these um, custom made masks. And yeah, we're going to be burying it uh, in a ceremony that will be on the 12th of March uh, out the front of the Women's Centre. So they've so this big pit for us and it'll be going in there. Um, and we're sort of inviting people when you come to the exhibition um, or you can go onto our website to leave their own messages um, about their experience to the future. 
and they'll be going inside um, a collection of hand sanitizer bottles that will also be like buried inside the capsule. And uh, we imagine that the capsule will be buried for around six years. And yeah, it's kind of is again like a bit different to what I imagined. Like, um, but I guess hopefully in the future people will be able to dig it up and you know I guess get a glimpse of at least what the early stages of this pandemic have been like. My twelve-year-old niece has uh, given a commitment to popping popping down and making sure it gets dug up, Katie. <laughs> oh, that's good because I was like, she's confidently expecting like, she'll still be alive. <laughs> Like, I was like, I'll be nine here, so I guess, like, maybe that's a bit outside my lifetime. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, that's, um, you know, you're really going to have to put some trust in the people that are around at the time to to go in and um, bring it back up. It's also really yeah. strange writing for people, potentially, who will think about, like, I suppose, you know, some of us gave a five minutes thought to the Spanish flu, others... Um, epidemiologists and so on would have given much more thought to it. Um, but, you know, sort of trusting the future enough to be inquiring even about relatively recent past and go to find something that's such a personal series of testimonies of an experience that feels quite particular to uh, Victorians also and in a real different range of Victorian women I think it, it's a it's a beautiful act of or art making, but also an act of faith in the continuity of women's experience and their interest in the past and learning about each other and those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, from what I know of the project, it is a you know it's a very diverse range of experiences. It's women of all ages, from all backgrounds, from different parts of the state. Um, which has all, you know, as as you said, Katie, it, the overlaps in that kind of make each experience unique and complex. And it's very cool that that will be kind of preserved in time for future generations to know about. Um, so Present Memory is a result of Katie being the feminist emissary at QVWC. Um, Joe, will this be continuing? So will there be more feminist residencies happening at QVWC? Yes. We are currently um, planning what the next phase uh, will be. We've been impacted, like many other organisations, we've been impacted financially by COVID, but being able to host um, organisations or people who are thinking deeply about um, feminism and expressions of feminism and the ways that um, social connectedness can really support um, individual and groups of women is really important to us. So we'll certainly be um, calling for expressions of interest in this um, kind of program in the coming months or so. Amazing. I think it's such a cool opportunity for women to just, you know, have that opportunity to create something that can be out in the world, supported by QVWC. Yeah, and I think it's important for the centre because... Um, you know, we're, we spend a lot of time thinking about how to make sure the building uh, doesn't fall down because it's over 100 years old, but it's actually about the people. And so making sure that the centre's ideas and approaches 
are relevant and reach out to um, people beyond our Lonsdale Street address is a very important um, way of making sure that we are um, part of our community. Absolutely. So if people want to know more about present memory or visit the exhibition in person, where can they go? Katie, do you want to do the honours? Oh, yes. So um, if you go to the Queen Vic Women's Centre website, there is uh, more detailed information about the project on the website. Um, or qbwc.org.au. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> um, or, yeah, you can visit the exhibition. So it's open um, 10 to 5 during the week, from Monday to Friday, and then it's also open on Saturdays. 12 to 5 and I will be there on Saturday so if you want to come and see the show and have a chat with me about it then um, yeah I'll be there 12 to 5 Saturdays for the next three weeks and then yeah on the 12th of March at 3pm we'll be burying the time capsule so um, and that will also be happening at the centre which is at 210 Lonsdale Street in the city. Amazing um you can also follow Q- QVWC on Instagram, on QVWC underscore Melbourne. Um, but yeah, definitely encourage everybody to go check out this amazing project that Katie and Joe have been working on for over 18 months now. I, I know that it's, um, you know, evolved in what it was originally going to be and what it is now, but that's part of what COVID has been like, I think, for everybody. So it's on theme. Um, sure is. So that's all we have time for this morning. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, I hope the uh, exhibition goes incredibly well and I look forward to the burial on the 12th of March. Thank you. Hope to see you there. Thank you. So that was Katie Svetkiris and Joe Porter talking to us about Present Memory, which is Katie's project currently being exhibited at Queen Victoria Women's Centre. Um, If you want to check it out, it is on 210 Lonsdale Street. We'll be right back after this. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. They're 100% recycled cards, Plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. So this morning we 
mentioned that um, it's been reported that the Australian government is funding a campaign in Sri Lanka called Zero Chance, uh, which encourages uh, filmmakers to create short films um, that discourage refugees from coming to Australia. This morning, we have Alison Ryan, who is a senior supervising solicitor at the Refugee Advice and Casework Service based in New South Wales, um, just to talk to us a bit more about what this campaign is and how it will affect the treatment of refugees in Australia. Welcome to the show, Alison. Alison, are you there? Yes, I am. Great. Uh, welcome to the show. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Could you start by just telling us a little bit more about um, your work and about RACS? Uh, certainly. So I work as a solicitor at RACS, which is the Refugee Advice Casework Service, and we're a community legal centre, a charity that provides legal services to people seeking safety, that people in Australia are wanting to apply for um, protection here in Australia and also assisting, um, providing legal assistance to people overseas who um, um, looking to um, reunite with family who are refugees here in Australia. Great. Um, so it, it's been recently reported that our government here is running a short film competition in Sri Lanka as a part of a campaign called Zero Chance. Could you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so um, from what's available on the on the internet and that's been reported, um, it appears that the Australian government contracted with a sort of advertising agency to um, encourage um, filmmakers, I think in Sri Lanka, to provide videos or, or games that would discourage people from um, coming to Australia um, to seek safety by, by boat. Yeah, what, as you know, as a um, solicitor who works primarily with refugees and asylum seekers, what is your view on the Australian government funding this campaign and what does it sort of say about Australia's relationship with Sri Lanka? Well, I suppose my, my biggest concern with the 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 competition and um, is is the fact that I feel like it really dehumanises people who are seeking asylum. I, when people are flee their homes, they're generally in very very difficult and dangerous situations. Um, as refugees, they they fear harm in their country. That 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 harm needs to be serious. It's something that they fear being killed or tortured, or, or other harm of that nature. And that's the driving force behind why people leave. Um, and sort of if you're in that situation where you're in a, there's a real threat to your safety and life, um, I don't see that people in this difficult position would be influenced by a short video or a game. And then I think it's, it's dehumanising and of people that are in that situation. Um, I also, I just feel that there are a, a better ways. I mean, people have a right to seek asylum. It's part of Australian law. It's part of international law. And working together to find um, a, um, safety for people who are in those situations, rather than um, rather than marginalising them or dehumanising them, which which already happens so much, is 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 really problematic. Yeah, um, and you mentioned the games as well, and I I had a look on the Zero Chance website, which uh, essentially features games that are dehumanising the experiences that refugees face, because as you said they get on a boat to leave only because they do fear for their lives. 
and then these games kind of gamify those experiences and belittle them. Um, are there sort of any in- international standards against something like this, or is this just you know is this just okay to be doing? So, so I don't think it is okay to be doing it at all. Um, I think it's difficult to. Uh, and the international law is really clear that it's um, legal to seek asylum. So I think that that term of, of phrasing it as um, illegal migration is is really harming. Um, so, so I think, yeah, there's not there's not a, a specific law that I, I think we can um, that in terms of the illegality of the of the campaign, but in terms of um, the fact that it's it's legal to to seek asylum is is really the message that we need to be providing, not not this not the um, the dehumanising um, the games that they have a, they have on this site. Yeah, um, has the Australian government used tactics like this before? And you know, I haven't seen much reporting on this at all. And the only reason I kind of it came onto my radar was because I saw someone visiting Sri Lanka put it on their Instagram story. So I haven't really seen that much out there. Um, so I'm wondering if this is something the Australian government has done previously and whether or not it ever works. Um, so I suppose this, the Australian government definitely runs campaigns in a number of countries around the world. Um, I know of campaigns in, in Iraq, in, in Indonesia in other places where they provide information um, or information campaigns in relation to trying to dissuade people from um, seeking seeking protection in Australia. Um, I think in terms of the, the, there's within budgetary papers, there's also information about the the amount Australia spends on that um, per year. Um, But in terms of the, the timing of this campaign, so I understand that it's a contract with an ad agency that's been going since about 2018. But I think it's it's a little bit um, odd that um, the strategy of the Australian government in in the timing of this campaign, in the sense that no boats have arrived in Australia since 2014. Yeah, and so it's very that strategy seems quite it's quite difficult to understand. Yeah, um, and. I'm also wondering what it sort of means for Australia's relationship with Sri Lanka because I imagine that, you know, Sri Lanka is on board with the campaign as well, which is how it's running there. Yeah, so it would seem so, and I think there's indications that Australia does, uh, yeah, cooperates with the Sri Lankan government in trying to stop people um, leaving Sri Lanka by um, by boat. Um, and... That's particularly concerning when, I mean, I represent many people who have um, fled to Australia from Sri Lanka and sought asylum, and those people by, that have came come by boat and their claims are still being processed by Australia, so that's taken a, a really long time for Australia to, to look at their cases. Um, and there are still people that are being found to be refugees that, that came to Australia in 2014. So we're accepting that if they're forced to return to Sri Lanka now, that they would face serious harm, including death or torture or other um, inhumane or degrading treatment. Um, and so, so that so we recognise that people are refugees from that country, um, but still we're we're making it very difficult for people to find safety. Yeah, um, and from some of the limited reporting, I am um, I've read that you know it 
people are saying that it just does seem like free propaganda for the government's anti-refugee agenda in Sri Lanka, um, which in and of itself is quite disturbing. And, you know, to or to kind of put more fear in people who are already so fearful for their lives um, is, yeah, it's quite... Uh, it's quite disturbing. Yes, I definitely agree with that. And it's, I mean, it sends an, a, a message that um, you can't you, you can't seek safety, and that it doesn't hold accountable the government of Sri Lanka, um, where we're we're on one side, we're saying that these um, human rights, serious human rights abuses are continuing um, when we recognise someone's a refugee here in Australia, um, but then by by cooperating with these sort of programs, it's saying to Sri Lanka, well, you won't be held accountable for that. Is there a way for, you know, the general public to know more about campaigns like this, um, you know, due to the lack of reporting? Is there a way for people to just be more abreast of what the government is doing? Um, so I think that's a, that's a good question. I suppose that's up to, you know, people that um, have access to this information to be... Um, sending it out more. I think um, freedom of information requests have revealed a, a lot about this particular program and so I think people that are interested in terms of holding up the government to account and seeing where our our money is being spent um, as taxpayers, um, utilising freedom of information to obtain that information and there's also um, 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 refugees and asylum seeker-led organisations which follow this information and provide um, provide um, a really um, important um, perspective from people from on these campaigns in the sense that they're someone that the, that has um, had made these really difficult choices and then the impact that these these um, uh, games and videos are having on them I think is is something to, to listen out to those voices. Absolutely. Well, I think that's all we have time for today, Alison. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and explaining this complex and quite disturbing issue to our listeners. Thank you very much for having me. So that was Alison Ryan from RAX um, t- talking to us about the government's Zero Chance campaign um, running a film competition in Sri Lanka to discourage refugees from seeking asylum in Australia. We'll be right back after this. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time this morning, but just before we go, I'd like to remind you that we're currently in a bit of a subscriber drive at the moment. So 
you can make it easy to renew each year um, and join us at uh, 3CR um, by setting up an annual recurring subscription online at 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. Uh, don't forget, on 3CR, you can hear community language programs, worker perspectives, the LGBTIQ plus community, people with disabilities, First Nation voices and on alternative current news and current affairs and so much more. You know, we've had some clips of some of those shows on our show before. We've interviewed so many interesting people. So if you want to hear more of that, uh, please subscribe. Uh, subscription costs are $35 unwaged uh, concession and pension and $75 waged. Um, or if you've got a little bit more cashola, you can also put in $150 uh, as your solidarity um, payment. Um, also, if you're an organisation too. Yeah, 3CR, you know, really relies on our listeners and support us to remain on air, online and on point. So make sure you're a part of ensuring 3CR continues. And subscribing is so easy. Uh, as I mentioned before, you can go online to 3cr.org.au slash subscribe, or you can even call the station on 94198377 and we can sort that out for you as well. So we've come to the end of our show. <laughs> we sure have. It's been a really jam-packed show. Um, we're looking forward to um, putting this on the website so you can listen back later. But let's have a little rundown and talk about what we um, chatted about to get today. Yeah, so we started off just listening to a clip um, from Climate Action Collective interviewing Emma Bacon um, of Sweltering Cities, which I found really interesting um, it's not something I hear much about usually. So yeah, it's it's really um, important information to think about how we're going to look at the future and how we're going to live um, in these cities too, as we um, are affected by climate change. Um, Fung then spoke to Lucia from Fight Together for Justice, um, talking about the Migration Act um, amendment, um, which was the strengthening the character test bill. Uh, and then Fung also spoke with Sarah, who is a queer Syrian filmmaker and programmer for the Queer Solidarity Film Festival. Um, they are having an event this Saturday at 4pm called QSFF002 Intergenerational Transmissions. Um, after which I spoke with Katie Svetkides, um, who is an artist and feminist emissary at Queen Victoria Women's Centre, and Joe Porter, who is the CEO of Queen Victoria Women's Centre, about the current exhibition there called Present Memory. Um, if you want to check that out, it is an archive of women, trans and non-binary people's um, experiences through COVID and will be on until the 12th of March. Um, and then just before I spoke with Alison Ryan, who is a senior supervising solicitor at Refugee Advice and Casework Service, about a campaign that the Australian government is funding in Sri Lanka called Zero Chance, um, which is a short film festival, a uh, short film competition that discourages refugees from seeking asylum in Australia. So that was Tuesday Breakfast. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, we'll be on again next week. Stay tuned to Accent of Women coming up with Giselle Hanna up next. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.